I'm turning this morning to Matthew chapter number 16. Matthew chapter number 16. And I'll just read verse 15 as we begin. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? But whom say ye that I am? That is our subject for this morning. And I want us to think about this question that the Lord asked His disciples. And it is the second of the two questions that He puts before His disciples in verses 13 through 17. Now, our Lord knew what the people thought about Him. But He asked His disciples the question with the intent of drawing out their minds toward Him. Our Lord was preparing in the coming hours and days to begin informing His disciples about His impending death. And it was becoming clearer that there needed to be a very clear distinction between what man thought about Jesus Christ and who His disciples thought He was. You'll notice He begins by asking the question, in verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Now notice this first question, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That question is different than what he puts before his disciples when he asks them, But whom say ye that I am? Of the two questions, the far more reaching and more deeply searching question of the two is the question that he asked his disciples. These questions, although they may read in a similar manner, the, one, the second question he asked is much deeper. It's a deeper question because it is a deeper searching question. It is really getting down to the very heart of what his disciples believed. What we think, what our opinion about Jesus Christ is, is not just a matter of preference, it's actually a matter of eternity. What you think about Christ is not just an opinion. When someone asks us the question, what do you think about Christ? Our response is, well, my opinion should not be, well, my opinion is, or what I think is, or what I hope is. Actually, it should be a lot more clear and distinct and definitive. As a matter of fact, what Jesus is doing is He's drawing out His disciples' mind on these things. And again, Jesus is not doing this because He doesn't know the answers to these questions. Sometimes we make a grave mistake where we begin to say, how many times was Jesus really asking because He just didn't know? Well, this question is our Lord supposing or presupposing and anticipating that His disciples would not have the same thought that the world had about Him. In other words, He's presupposing that they're not going to give the same answer that the world would give. He's clearly expecting two different answers because He's asking two different audiences. Now again, he's using this more to instruct his disciples by drawing their mind out by saying, okay men, what is the world at large and the people that you see, what are they saying about me? 
And then, but I want to know, what are you saying? Jesus would not have his men, his disciples, have the same thoughts that the spirit of the age had. And he would not have his people have their thinking patterns shaped by the culture in which they were living. But rather, that their views of him should be based upon the time that has, they have spent with him and what the Old Testament scriptures have declared about him. In other words, Jesus is supposing that his people are going to give a different answer. It's not going to be the same answer that was given. It's going to be an answer that is different. Now the question that Jesus puts before his disciples, but whom say ye that I am? Of course the disciples were more conversant with the people. They were more involved in society. No doubt as they lived and worked, they had heard differing opinions about him. I think it's, it's sometimes we become so removed from the situation that there were conversations going on in the streets about Jesus. And if you were to go into the marketplace, you would hear conversations about Jesus and, hey, who do you think he is? What have you heard about him? Um, what's being said? Uh, much like we have in our society today. Um, if, you, if you listen... Uh, you'll hear conversations about a lot of different things. Um, you can go into a, uh, even into a coffee house, and occasionally, if you listen really carefully, you'll hear people talking about religion. You'll hear them talking about the things of God. And you'll hear the opinions. And again, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is asking these men what they had heard. Uh, these men were probably more free to speak about who Jesus was, who Jesus is more than anyone else. Varying sentiments about Jesus do not change the reality of who he is. Sentiments have changed. Sentiments are changing. Um, if you believe things like this, I don't know how much stock I put into them, but surveys and things say that the sentiment about Christianity in America is changing and that it's at the lowest that it's ever been um may it, maybe it is maybe it isn't it would mark the last days it would follow in with perilous times shall come it would it would be reasonable to say that things are the sentiment about christianity is changing and that christianity if we stay on the current course will be outnumbered by other religions some are saying uh, by three to one that within a number of years, Christianity will be clearly the minority and other religions, denominations will be the majority. And that if Christians don't arm themselves for this battle, which again conjures up a lot of different uh, opinions, uh, it, it, then we're going to be outnumbered. Well, the reality is, is throughout history, Christianity and true followers of Christ have always been outnumbered. We've always been the smaller, the remnant. And the reality is, as Jesus is, is, is drawing out of his disciples these thoughts, because not because sentiment is changing, but because man has always been hardened in his heart. Man has always had, uh, does not want anything to do with God. And again, Jesus, as he's putting this question to his disciples, remember, he has a purpose here. It's to draw out their mind in order that they would make a confession of him. 
they would confess their faith. Now, first that Jesus deals with in verses 13 and 14, and we'll just put it under a simple heading of the, the people's opinion of Christ. The people's opinion. Now, the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, have this narrative in a little bit different, it's phrased a little bit different. Mark says in Mark 8, 27, Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples saying unto them, whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, others one of the prophets. Luke, in Luke 9, verses 18 and 19, it says, And he came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. Now, you'll notice in our text in Matthew 16, verse 13, it goes on in verse 14, And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah's or one of the prophets. Now you'll notice that Matthew is the only one that makes mention of Jeremiah. Again, sentiments are the same. There are words going out. There is a, an opinion of what the people are saying. But when Jesus asked his disciples, notice he very clearly says, whom do men? That's a reference to the natural man. It's the same way that Luke puts it in his text in Luke uh, chapter number 9. He says, whom say the people? So the opinion that Jesus is asking is who does the common person say that I am? I don't think it's much different if you went out to a street corner in a major metropolitan city and stood on a corner and said, can I ask you a question? Who do you say Jesus Christ is? I would be willing to state that you would get a number of opinions. Within those, let's say, 10 opinions, you might get an opinion that sounds pretty, pretty close to what you believe. You might get nine separate opinions. You might get someone say, well, Jesus, is a, he was a good man. He's a good example. But maybe one out of 10, maybe it'd be higher. We're guessing. One of them might say, he's the son of God. He's God. Jesus intentionally says, who do people, what is man's opinion, who do they say that I am? Jesus, who knows the hearts of all, again, he's doing this not because he doesn't know the sentiment of the land. He's drawing out Peter's confession. He's drawing out his disciples' confession. Remember, don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus, many of his teachings, again, I want you to make sure you hear me clearly, was not as evangelistic in nature, but more instructive in nature to draw out of his disciples what they believed. Now, it doesn't mean there's no evangelism in the Gospels. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is that sometimes we turn everything into an evangelism verse. Sometimes we, like Peter... And the disciples need the Word of God to draw out so that we make a sturdy confession of faith that's rock solid, that cannot be disturbed. Now, there's evangelism in this, no doubt. But this is one of those tender instructional moments that Jesus is teaching His disciples to want them to declare. Because what He's getting ready to tell them they're going to have to have a rock-solid confession to be able to even start to endure 
the events that are going to unfold. Now, the disciples, the Bible in all those accounts, in Mark, Luke, and Matthew, again, we don't want to read too much in the Scripture, but we have to say there's no delay in their response. They don't say, well, we're not sure what the sentiment is. We're not sure what the people's opinion are. Can you give us 24 hours and we'll go down into the streets and in the marketplace and we'll, we'll conduct a survey? We'll ask the questions. No. They immediately, and notice what it says, and they said, okay, they, the disciples, they come to this, they've already got it, they know what the sentiment is, they know what the opinion is. Thou art John the Baptist. Now that was probably the most prevalent of the day, and there was a reason why they believed that. And we've talked about that a few weeks ago, about Herod even had the idea that John the Baptist was, was a reincarnation, that basically he'd take on it, and they believed that this could happen. That was one of the opinions. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elias or Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. John the Baptist, that was a common sentiment of the day. Elias is referencing back to the prophecy in Malachi 4.5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So this is the common sentiment that's happening. And we even read in John chapter number 1, that the Bible tells us in John 1, 19 through 21, if you want to go ahead and turn, we'll read that in a moment. It says that before the coming of Messiah, Elijah should come. So in John chapter 1, verse 19, again, we're, we're looking at this, that there's, these are the sentiments, these are the opinions. John 1, verse 19, and this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests, and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? Now this is John. And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that sent us. See, there was even people being sent to find out who this John the Baptist is. They're, they're, they were so taken by what's happening. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah or Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who cometh after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming into him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. There's no doubt that there was sentiment, there were opinions. There's no doubt that today there is sentiment, there's opinions. Now again, why, 
Matthew's the only one that mentions Jeremiah. It just goes along with the line that they were looking for prophets. They were looking for a Messiah. They even knew that before Messiah comes, Elijah must come. And so we could talk about that. But the Jews began to see Christ doing these wonderful works, these miracles we've been talking about. Word is spreading that Jesus is performing these miracles. They truly were brought to a crossroads of asking themselves the question, who is this man? Because on the one hand, he's doing these miracles, he's fulfilling some of the things that the prophets have told us. Herod, of course, and his entire household, they were convinced That Jesus, I mean, I'm not talking about just a partial opinion. They were convinced that this was John the Baptist risen from the dead. That's what their sentiment was. If you'd have been in Herod's house and said, who do you say Jesus is? They would say, this is John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist risen from the dead. They had an opinion that this man had such extraordinary powers, such extraordinary virtue that he was actually risen from the dead. There was an opinion. All the Jews have an opinion of who Jesus Christ is. Do you realize all of mankind has an opinion of who Jesus Christ is, whether they'll admit it to you or not? Every person in this planet has an opinion. Now again, in a day and age when we think opinion is truth, Right? If you want to know truth, just log on to your social media accounts. That's where your truth is. No, that's where deception's taking place. That's not where truth is. But man says, if that's my opinion, then that's true. That's where we get the idea of relative truth. What's true for you may not be true for me. No, true is true no matter which way you frame it. My sentiment of Jesus Christ, what my opinion is, is not ultimately what saves my soul or damns my soul. It's not my opinion. We have in our society, well, my opinion, I have a right for my opinion to be heard. Think about that for a minute. Do we really have a right? But opinions are opinions. And yet the opinion of Herod and many others were that the Jews and Herod had an opinion that this was John the Baptist risen from the dead. So the people, Jesus had an opinion. Back to verse 15. So we see verses 15 through 17. And Peter comes to the forefront. Now I want you to to notice though that verse 14 says, and they said, so they all had an opinion what they were saying, but it's Peter who speaks up in verse 15. So verses 15 through 17, very simply, we'll just give it the heading, Peter's confession of Christ. Okay, we have the people's opinion. What's Peter's confession? Now again, as we did with the other verses, let's first of all look at verses 15 and 16. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it. Revealed what? His confession unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. We'll deal with this beautiful passage in just a moment. Peter gave an answer that was the only correct answer. Thou art the Christ. 
The very thing that was being questioned in John 1 is the very thing that Peter now confesses clearly and says, you are the Christ. Now Mark, in Mark 8.29, says, thou art the Christ. Luke puts it in an interesting way in Luke 9.20. Peter, it says, Peter answering said, the Christ of God. Now that phrase, the Christ of God, literally means the Messiah. So when you see that phrase in Luke where he says the Christ of God, that's telling us that Peter is declaring, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Jesus says, again, more than just, what's your opinion of me? He's asking them the question that what is your confession of me? Extraordinary sentiment, extraordinary views in society. Men have opinion. Men have uh, uh, the desire to share your opinion with them. But remember who Jesus is asking the question to. He says, who do you say? Apart from man and their sentiment, he's telling them, I don't want your sentiment. I don't want your opinion. I want a declaration of your confession of me. We take that phrase confession of faith around here very seriously because that is what differentiates it between a confession of faith and an opinion. It's not a matter of what does your church believe? There's only one truth to believe. And we really shouldn't respond with the question, well, our church believes this. Our church thinks this. There is only one right answer. And if you get the question wrong about who Christ is, your whole church is wrong. If you get Christ wrong, I don't care how good everything else is, you get the whole thing wrong. Jesus is not interested in opinions. He's not interested in sentiment. In... Romans 10.10, the Bible actually speaks of our Lord, the Apostle Paul writes what he expects faith in our hearts. Not only just sentiment, opinions, or faith in our hearts, but the confession of our lips. Romans 10.10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It doesn't say with opinion is salvation with sentiment is salvation even with thinking and respecting god is not salvation an awareness of god is not salvation declaring that this man's doing miracles is not a confession of faith Even believing Jesus walked on the water is not a confession unto salvation. What God is drawing out of Peter is something much more than just opinion. And I love the way it's in its simplicity, and Simon Peter answered. Just as quickly, we're going to suppose, because there's no delay, it doesn't say Peter had to walk away and say, Lord, you've asked me a very difficult question. He answered. 
Now again, Peter does not answer, as the Catholics would have you believe, because he had priority among the apostles. We're going to learn about that next week. And that's why I'm saying that. It's not because Peter has priority. But simply, Peter commonly was the one who was very quick to answer the Lord's question. Sometimes his quickness resulted in the proverbial foot in his mouth. Quickness does not indicate that you have it right. Nor does delay mean that you don't have it right. It's not a matter of how much time elapses between his confession, but it is important that the answer that he gives is the right answer. So he speaks first. And you'll notice that we don't see the disciples at this point other than Peter answering the question, and that leads to a conversation with, between Jesus and Peter, which we will dig deeper into next week. But what he said seems like a very little confession of faith, but what he says is the very foundation of the gospel. You say, but I don't see the ABCs here. I don't see the ABCs. I don't see the Romans road here. I don't see this. What you see is a true confession of faith. Now again, those other means can help us understand. But I can walk the Romans road and not have a confession of faith that is eternal. I can pray the prayer and not have a confession of faith that is eternal. This is a confession of faith that stands because he's acknowledging that he is the promised Messiah of those Old Testament prophets. Name one. Whichever one you want to talk about. Jeremiah, you want to talk about Elijah, you want to talk about Isaiah. Use any of them. All three of those men were prophesying about the same Messiah. And what Peter is, Peter is clearly declaring is, you are that Christ. The Christ of God. By the way, that is, a, that is an amazing proof text that shows us that Jesus Christ is God. He's acknowledging you're everything the Scriptures say you would be. How I know who Christ is is not because of man's sentiment and man's opinion. It's because of what the Scriptures declare Him to be. I don't believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah because it is the popular sentiment of the day. I believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah because the Word clearly demonstrates that there is no other person, no other individual that can be the Messiah than Jesus Christ. I wouldn't know that without the Scriptures. I didn't have a vision in the middle of the night that Jesus, that Spirit revealed. It was through His Word that I have the assurance. Peter was walking with the Word. The Word was made flesh, John 1.1. The Word, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ is our Emmanuel. Peter is declaring that's exactly who he is. The son of the living God. A Messiah is the one who was anointed. The person who was promised to the world 
under the name of Messiah. That's who the Christ is. Now, he doesn't mean here that he's a son by adoption, but rather he is a son by nature. Peter believed John the Baptist. He believed Elijah. He believed the prophets. But he believed something even more than that. He says he is of the son of the living God. And remember, the Lord had asked, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Did you notice that? In that first question, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And in the same sense, he speaks to his disciples. Whom do ye say that I, the son of man, am? The reality is, is Jesus Christ was in human flesh. Son of man. Peter declares, you're more than just a human. You are the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. A number of times throughout Scripture, God is often referred to as the living God. Do you know why that phrase is used? That phrase is used to differentiate Him, to put Him direct in opposition to idols. That living God is not just a caricature to make it sound powerful and strong. When Peter says, thou art the son of the living God, what he is declaring is you are in direct opposition to the idols. And by the way, every idol cannot see, every idol cannot hear, and every idol has zero life in them. Zero life. So when Peter says, you are the only living God, In Hebrews 3, verse 12, it says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Remember, in our study in Hebrews, because the temptation was that they were going to go back to the old way of keeping the law, but also that Israel would go back, the Jews would go back to the way of false gods. You don't have to go very far in redemptive history in the Old Testament to find when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they got across that Red Sea, it wasn't very long. They were making idols. God had gone up to the mountain with Moses and it was taking too long and the people were getting impatient and decided, look, we'll make a God of our own. And they made a golden calf. And that golden calf became their object of worship. God was only on the mountain with Moses for a brief amount of time, but do you see how little time it took for man to depart from a living God to a dead God? You are more than likely to come in contact with somebody this week who is a worshiper of a dead God. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Do you realize that Christianity, biblical Christianity, biblical Christianity is the only quote-unquote religion that has a living God? No other religion in the world's God is alive. Take every cult that's ever arisen on the scene. Every cult, either its God is dead or its founder is dead or soon will be dead. What keeps it going? What do you think of me? Who do you say that I am? 
You see, this was to differentiate the living God. We have a full and plain confession of the doctrine. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, fully man, fully God. I used to use the term 100% man, 100% God, and I began to, that doesn't sound right. Fully man, fully God. He says, you're much more than just a human. You're much more than just a good example. And during this time of year, you're much more than just a baby in a manger. Which isn't even the point. But the reality here is, Jesus has drawn out a full confession of faith out of Peter from Peter's own mouth. You notice he didn't manipulate Peter and tell him what to say. He didn't say, now Peter, I want you to remember everything we've talked about. He asked the question and Peter answered it. Now notice verse 17. Jesus' answer back to him and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Our Lord here, from a human perspective, we might say that Jesus is very pleased with the answer that Peter gives. And we've got to be careful about using the word please the way it would please you and I. But that's kind of the idea here. He's pleased with this confession of Peter. We understand that Peter often is, again, the first one to speak. Remember in John 6, 68, it says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou, art, thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter would make that confession over and over again, but yet when the time came, he was afraid. And he ran from a maiden girl, when she says, I know who you are. Now Jesus declares that this confession that you have, Peter, did not come from your flesh and blood, but rather this confession came from my Father which is in heaven, which ties right back to the reality that all that the Father gave to the Son will come unto him. The elect are God's, the Father's gift to the Son. Jesus, very clearly here, for those who struggle with these doctrines, you're going to have a hard time with this verse declaring, why did Peter believe? Did he believe by his own free will? No, Jesus clearly says it's because my Father's revealed it to you. This confession of faith is not drawn out by your intellect. This confession of faith is not drawn out by your flesh and blood and your education. The Father has revealed it to you that the Son is the living God through the power of the Spirit and the effectual power of the Word. That's what's happening. But he uses the word blessed. And he gives them the reason why you're blessed. Now the word, the name Simon Barjona is simply Simon, means Simon the son of Jonah, or some would say the son of John. Our Lord gives him the same name in John 21, 15, when he says, So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. It's a reference also back to his humanity. Because Jesus clearly now says, For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. 
When Jesus uses this phrase, flesh and blood, He means man. Or what we might say, the wisdom of man. Tie that back to the question that Jesus asked, whom do men say that I am? Does everybody see the connection? Who do men say that I am? Men who are acting in the wisdom of themselves, in the wisdom of their own flesh, in the intellect of their own blood. They're only coming up with a sentiment. They're only coming up with an opinion. They're only coming up with an I think so. But when God reveals it to you, it's not an opinion. It's not a, it's not a sentiment. It is a confession of fact. Folks, you ought to be so sure of who Jesus Christ is that there is not a single person in this world that can knock you off of that belief system, that can even begin to make you question, I wonder if Jesus Christ is the only way. I'm watching false teachers knock professing Christians off of their feet because they become intimidated by what the false teacher is saying. Do you realize if God reveals to you the truth of who Jesus Christ is, no false teacher is going to knock you off your feet. You're not going to one time wonder, I wonder if this cult over here is right. I wonder if I'm missing something. I wonder if I just, if I'd have gone to Bible college, I would have gotten this. That's the wisdom of this world, friends. Jesus clearly says, Peter, what you're confessing about me, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. It's often used in Scripture about flesh and blood, and no greater example is the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.16 when he's, Paul's talking about uh, God revealing Himself in him, and he, he talks about the mission God gave him. And he says, to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. When He was converted, He didn't go try to confirm it with His flesh and blood. He realized that what's being revealed to Him and what's being told of Him doesn't come from flesh and blood. Jesus is telling Peter the same thing. Peter, you've not learned this confession of faith by tradition. You've not learned this from the wisdom of man. You've not learned this by human reasoning. You have learned this directly from my Father. And don't miss what He says. My Father which is in heaven. That's a declaration of a promise that Jesus is getting ready to announce to His disciples. If I go away, I go to prepare a place for you. These words are not here for irony. They're here to remind us that what's happening here can only be revealed from a God of heaven. It also confirms what we have in Ephesians 2.8. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The entirety of it is the gift of God. Why is it the entire gift of God? Because it was God who revealed it to you. That's what makes it a gift. You say, well, no, I, I, I have you, preacher. I, but I'm still in that camp that believes 1% was my own study and 99% of it was God. No. Not a single bit of it was your flesh and blood. 
And that's why 99% of people who struggle with assurance struggle with assurance is because you're trusting in flesh and blood instead of trusting in the declared word of God. That's what the enemy uses. And by the way, the devil doesn't have to do that to you. You will do that to yourself. Every time you try to put your faith and confer with your flesh and blood, you're going to start struggling with your salvation. Because you're trying to reason it. You're trying to quantify it. You're trying to say, well, but what about this? No, so clear. It's the gift of God. Our Lord clearly declares to Peter that faith is the gift of God. John 6.44, we either believe this or we don't. No man cometh to the Son, but he whom the Father draweth. Amen. That's who's coming. And if you came to Him, you were drawn by Him. You didn't come in flesh and you didn't come in blood. The Father draws through the Son. Now make no mistake about it. Men and the reason of men, the wisdom of men, they may collect the reports. They may collect the eyewitness accounts. They might even begin to collect evidence, which by the way, often evidence is evidence of reason. Like people who struggle with creation say, well, the scientists have this. You're already on a faulty foundation the minute that you say the scientists have this because science is built on a faulty foundation because the science is built on the fact there is no God. Why do you listen to the scientists if you're a Christian? Why do you even entertain the idea that creation didn't happen the way the Bible says? It's a settled matter. And as a believer, you shouldn't be struggling with, did God really create all this? That's milk. That's the milk of God's Word. But a man can acquire evidence. He can actually make a thesis statement. Every good scientist has an intention. What am I trying to prove to you? So what does the scientist who's trying to deal with creation, what is his starting point? Well, first of all, my starting point is there is no God. Everything from that is faulty and wrong, no matter what his evidence says. No matter what his sentiment is, no matter what his confession is, he may say, this is what I believe. But a man can come to all these things, he can gather evidence, but that's not faith. We're not asking you, when you come to a service like this, we're not asking you to go out and gather evidence. We're not asking you to go out and read the latest book at the Christian, <laughs> at this bookstore that claims to be Christian. That some of that stuff that might be on your shelf, you might want to just toss. Don't donate it to Goodwill, burn it. That's what's at the typical Christian bookstore now. Oh, this book looks good. You know anything about that person? You might want to know what they think about God. Because they shouldn't be in the Christian bookstore. You can acquire all of this knowledge and not have faith. Faith is an ascension to something, of course. It's an ascension to understanding what's been told based on the authority of He alone who has authority to tell you, which is God. 
How do I know what God says about salvation? Through His Word. Yet the most neglected privilege in the Christian life is reading this book. Most professing Christians, again, not meaning to be hateful, disrespectful. Most professing Christians never pick this book up one time in seven days except on Sunday. And then, even then, they pick it up and they're only halfway there when the sermon's being preached. That's just reality. Most people don't know what the Bible says because they don't read it. They don't understand what the world's pushing at them. They don't understand why I cannot just stand for, faith, stand for the faith in Christ. Why do I keep wavering? Either A, you don't know what it says, or you're failing to believe the authority in which God has declared His Word to be. And if it's been revealed in you, you don't need to question whether or not this is truth or not. You see, no man truly and savingly believes that Jesus Christ is the, the eternal Son of God and the Savior of the world unless God does that work in him. And by the way, it's not God assisting you as you work. It's God does a work. Read about Paul talking about to the church at Philippi about the good work that God does in the soul. God does the work. But that doesn't mean you just sit there and don't ever read your Bible. You don't pray. You don't, you don't go to church and just sit there. God does the work, so I don't have to do anything. No, you're going to be so hungry for the things of God, you don't have to be told to do these things. Folks, I don't spend a lot of time telling you how many hours and how many minutes and how many days you need to be praying and reading your Bible because that is a presupposed action of a believer. I'm not going to try to convince you why you should be at church more, why you should read your Bible more, why you need to pray more. That is an automatic. Because once God has revealed these truths to you, you are taken in humility and saying, why would God die, send his son to die for a wretch like me, who even after salvation still struggles with this old sin nature in me, still doesn't do the things that he should do. Yet God does this work in a heart. Now again, Jesus and Paul are not saying that the ministry of the Word doesn't matter because it's the Apostle Paul himself who says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How God speaks to you is not audibly. He speaks to you through His Word. Amen. Do you know how many Christians are making decisions and here's how it goes. God told me. And I say, how did God tell you? I don't know. I had a feeling. That wasn't God. Christians should know that. God does not speak to you audibly. He speaks through the ministry of the Word. Now, can you be sitting in a preaching service and the Word of God being read and being preached and being spoken and you hear the Word? Yes. It doesn't have to mean you sitting there turning the pages. God speaks through the ministry of the Word. Ministers, preachers, pastors, elders, every one of them understand, if they understand biblically, they are nothing more than instruments to proclaim this living God. We're not kingdom builders. 
We're not church builders. We're not entertainers. You, you realize that a long time ago, you came to a church that's not about entertainment. You're not going to get entertainment here. But you're going to hear the truth. And you're going to hear it over and over and over again. Even if you say, I've been saved for 30 years. You're going to hear the gospel over and over and over again. And the gospel is not going to grow tired and old and dried up. It's going to grow more precious to you. And you're going to say, preacher, tell me the gospel again. Preacher, preach it again. God, let me read it again. You see, God does a work in the soul. And he does a real work in the soul that's not superficial. He does an eternal work. Peter makes this confession of faith. Jesus calls Peter blessed, not because Peter is going to be the future head of the Catholic Church. Zero to do with that. He's blessed because he understands these truths. And he's blessed because God has done a work in him. You realize when we say blessings be to you, we're saying that very thing, that's a, that you have a confession of Jesus Christ. The word blessed, honestly, ought to be used sparingly. We use it all the time as if it's just a common greeting. No, to be blessed is to know these truths. That's the blessed man. Psalm says, blessed is the man whom thou, who God has chosen. That's a blessed man. Now again, bring it to conclusion. Jesus would have each of his disciples to form a confession of him. Each one needed their own confession of faith. Each man had been with Jesus. Each man had heard. Each man had seen different things. Jesus inquired. The question was presented to all of them. Peter doesn't speak for the group. Because we know that there was one within that group who certainly would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. But he was actually placed there, ordained of God to be the betrayer. But each person has to answer that question today. You have to answer this question today. Whom say ye that I am, Christ says. Whom say ye? Not what does my mom say. Young people, listen to me. Not what does my dad say. Not what does my brother say. Not what does my grandparents say. You would be shocked how many people actually grew up believing they were saved because their parents were saved. I used to think that this was like an extreme position. And the more and more I talk to people, the more I realize there are thousands of children who think I'm saved or I was saved because my parents were. And I never had to make a confession of faith because mom and dad made one for me. No. Each person, each person is confronted today with that question. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Is it sentiment? Is it opinion? Churches waver with the, like, like a flag in the wind because a little bit of pressure comes and they say, we're going to change our doctrine a little bit because we don't want to offend anybody on this side. Listen, a true confession of faith is going to stay on the same path and it's not wavering, it's not moving because it's a confession of faith that's been wrought by God Himself. And you're not going to let the wind of doctrine of the day move you away from it. 
And again, I know I've talked about kids so much. I told you these, I told you our kids are so on my heart this week. I can't stand it. Your children are being indoctrinated and you sometimes don't even know it. And the indoctrination is starting with the parents because the parents don't know they're being indoctrinated. But do not under any circumstances ever give an opinion to your child that says, it's okay, honey, you're saved because mommy and daddy are saved. No. Pray for your child every day and say, Lord, I beg you to open the eyes of my child that they would be saved. You don't want to be the one responsible for opening your child's eyes. God, reveal in them Jesus Christ, and I'm telling you, the day that that happens, you will thank the Lord above and say, listen, I didn't manipulate my child. My child never thought that they were saved because of me. They were saved because God did a work in them. And that work revealed Jesus Christ to them. This, this indoctrination I know every time we hear that word, we think the next word that comes along is conspiracy. That's not what I'm talking about, folks. But if, if you think that everything that's going on around you, from entertainment to school, does not start with the foundation of making your child believe that there is no God with an intent of indoctrinating them to start thinking that certain sin is okay, you have got your head way too deep in the sand. It is intentional. It's not ignorance. It's not by accident. If the, the downfall of a society does not start with the older people, the downfall of a society starts with the children. And if you can knock children away from the things of God, get them rebelling against parents, get them doing their own thing, get them saying, listen, I don't have to listen or obey any authority. You will undo a whole nation. While we're blindly watching all the adults in the room, the devil's not working on the adults in the room. He's working on the children that we've taken our eyes off of. That's how you cut the knees out under a nation. Get inside the home. We often used to say, get inside the home, get the mom and dad. No, the indoctrination, the way the world is, no, get inside and get the kids. You say, preacher, this scares me. It should. It should wake us up. It should wake us up that our family should have a rock-solid confession of faith, that each member of that family makes that confession of faith for themselves. And when your child is old enough to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? They'll answer it. They'll answer it for themselves. Let every one of us answer this question. Before you leave this place today, you should be able to answer that question. Peter confessed Christ for himself. Although he spoke for his brethren, they all had to make a confession of faith on their own. Peter believed he was the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter clearly showed that he believed that Jesus was more than just a man. And our Lord declared Peter as blessed. What happens is Jesus drew out a confession of faith that was different from unbelievers. We don't believe like unbelievers believe. We don't find our hope in the same thing unbelievers find their hope in. We find our belief in he who is the author of hope.
He who is the only remedy for what ails not only this nation, but ails this world. And that's Jesus Christ. Who do you say that he is? I hope you can answer that question properly this morning. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I realize the lateness of the hour today, but Father, I pray, Lord, that you would just, for these last few moments we have gathered together, Lord, that our hearts would just consider and think about what we've heard, that the Spirit of God, we would uh, just hear the Spirit's voice today. Lord, I have no way of knowing. I have no way of knowing every single person's heart in this room today. There's no way any of us can know it. But Father, I pray that we all can answer that question that God has done a work in every single person who's here. Lord, we realize there may be young people here and children who uh, they're not at that place yet. But Father, as a church, how we pray and how we beg, Lord, that you would open the eyes of these children, Lord, that they would see that they need a Savior, they would see their sin, and Lord, that you would do a work in them. Father, I pray that we as a church would not just look at other families and, and say, boy, that, that family has to be concerned about that, that we would love one another in such a fashion that we're praying for each other's children as if those children are our own. Father, what, a, what an amazing privilege it is to see children being born and seeing children being raised in godly homes. But Lord, we pray for this, what's going on in our society, the things that are happening. Lord, we've closed our eyes to some of these things for way too long. We've pretended like it wasn't on our doorstep. We've pretended like things really aren't as they seem. But Father, we know that there's an agenda of the unbelieving world to undermine and attempt to undermine the faith of our kids. But Father, we are grateful, Lord, that nothing or no power can come against you. Nothing can stop and hinder your word from going forth. But Father, the amount of heartache that we would experience, Father, by just simply not adhering to your word, the consequences are horrific. Father, we just beg of you today for the souls of those who need to be saved today and those uh, that are at that place where the gift of repentance can be given and that their eyes can be opened and their ears unstopped, that they might hear the glorious gospel and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, bless this time now we have as we bring the service to a close. For it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.